you please join me as I pray? Our Father, we with all of our attention, we, we come to hear from you. Would you speak by your spirit through this text to us? Would you be a bright, shining light, like a, like a searchlight, like a spotlight set on Jesus, that we would see him in his beauty, that we would be drawn to him, that we wouldn't domesticate or defang him, but that he would be all that he is in our sight together. We pray for revolution, that his revolutionary touch that transforms our lives, it flips more than tables as everything he touches is changed and transformed. Jesus, you are welcomed in this place. Would you come and speak to and deal with us, your people? Thank you in advance for what you intend to do. In Jesus' name I pray it, amen. In the years leading up to COVID, I had this great privilege of taking church planters from Houston to Cuba each year. And we did cross-training, Cuban church planters and Houston church planters, learning from one another as we shared training and understood a bit of what their experience had been of planting the church kind of underneath the surface. It had been a, a hidden underground church that was planted and multiplied in homes and it was a very inspiring season getting to spend year after year with these, with these planters that were heroes in their own right. It was also really intriguing to see the country from one end to the other. A country that was built on revolutionary ideals, a country that still had large kind of paintings of Che Guevara up and down city streets and where People still had the dreams of a revolution, but were dealing with the outcomes of something that the lived experience was very different. I remember sitting in one auto mechanic shop getting to share about Jesus with a man that had only heard bits and pieces about who he was, and we were talking about Jesus and life and being a Cuban, and it was interesting that when it came time for him to mention Fidel Castro, he actually wouldn't say his name because he was afraid that someone is always listening. And so when he wanted to comment about Fidel, he would just take three fingers and tap his shoulder, meaning the military stripes that he wears on his shoulder. And he says, well, you know, he owns all the cows and he doesn't let us eat beef. And you know, it's been really hard because, and he was sharing the honest experience as being a Cuban, but he didn't even want to say it out loud because the one that they had thought was a revolutionary had become a tyrant. And uh, it's interesting, I've been... I've been reading the stories of revolutionaries uh, in preparation for a sermon series that we're starting today. We're calling this sermon series Revolutionary. Looking at the life of Jesus in the book of Luke, we're going to take several snapshots of Jesus's journey throughout Luke and recognizing the ways that he shows up on the scene and he is revolutionary. He is transforming everything that he touches. He is unlike anything that has ever encountered the world. But he's very different against the relief and the backdrop of other revolutionaries throughout history. He's going to operate differently with a different set of tools and a different approach to these realities. You know, it's interesting in reading a recent memoir written by the private bodyguard of Fidel Castro, a man who devoted himself to the revolution. At the end of his life, he had written this memoir after defecting to the United States. And he said, two questions I can't quit turning over in my mind. One is why do revolutions never pan out the way that we think? 
And two, why do revolutionaries end up becoming worse than the tyrants they overthrow? This to a man who had spent his whole life devoted to a cause. And at the end was going, how did it turn out this way? The beauty that we're being invited into is to come into contact with the revolutionary. One who everything he touches is turned over, turned upside down. And in so doing, it actually leads to greater and greater liberty, greater and greater freedom. He is going to use different tools and he's going to accomplish different ends with a different sort of revolution. But, but believe you me, this man is the revolutionary of all revolutionaries who've walked the planet. We are together going to set our gaze on Jesus, the person and his ministry, understanding the ways that he truly is the ultimate revolutionary. And today, by way of introduction, what we're going to see is this, that spirit-filled revolution, the sort of revolution that is empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit, generates enthusiastic acceptance and angry rejection, and sometimes only separated by a, by a breath. We're going to see that this revolutionary, he's, he's enthusiastically accepted where he meets people's expectations, but he doesn't just meet expectations, he challenges and overturns expectations. And for that reason, he's also going to generate angry rejection. And so as we're introduced to the story of this revolutionary, we're going to see the very contours of what spirit-filled revolution does when it shows up. First, what do I mean by spirit-filled revolution? Did you notice that in verse 14, Jesus showed up in the power of the Spirit? It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country. In the verses leading up to the portion that we're studying, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and as Many of you may know from reading that story that when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him in a visible form. He was touched by the power of the Spirit of God. It was settling on him and staying with him. And then that very same Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to confront the devil. And for 40 days, he fasted and prayed and lived in the wilderness and stood up to the temptation of the evil one. And he was beginning to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit that had descended on him. And as he comes back into the region that he grew up in, into the northern territories, as he shows up, he does so directed by, filled with, overwhelmed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever is about to unfold in Jesus's journey, it is being directed by the third person of the Godhead, that he is being directed by God's purposes and plans. He is filled with the Spirit. And for that reason, what we will see time and again is that encountering Jesus is different. It was then, it still is today. When you encounter the genuine article, it is different. He is compelling. He is unforgettable. He's going to encounter religious and powerful people in such a way that leaves them feeling somewhat exposed and vulnerable. They thought they were impenetrable with their religion and their money and their strength. And all of a sudden, Jesus sees people and he shows up as a homeless rabbi with not a place to lay his head other than a rock. And he speaks and acts differently in such a way that people feel seen and exposed where they've had this, this hope placed in an external power. But for the weak, for children, for prostitutes, for tax collectors, they feel drawn in, seen, 
Like, oh, here's a place where I could feel known and restored. Jesus shows up in the power of the Spirit, and as a result, he sees things and interacts with the world in a way that is different than anybody has previously. It is a Spirit-filled revolution, and he comes committed. He is committed to the poor, the imprisoned, the blind, and the oppressed. He finds a passage in Isaiah 61. I want to read it to you. It, it connects to the sermon series we just completed. And I want you to hear the way he is declaring, in a sense, this is the manifesto of, of the revolution he's bringing. He's saying, here in his first recorded sermon, if I'm going to be about anything, I'm going to do this. This is the way he says it. It says, he came into Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was his hometown. Helpful to note that there's probably three or 400 people that live there. Everybody knows everybody. So when Jesus shows up at the synagogue in Nazareth, he's looking into the eyes of people that he grew up with. These are friends, neighbors, cousins. He knows them all, and they all know him. He comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, this would be a really long scroll, and it would be somewhat unique that when it's given to him, he unrolls the scroll, and he goes all the way to the portion that he's intending to read, and then he just reads a very small snippet. So he goes all the way to Isaiah 61, and it says, when he had found the place where it was written, this is what he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he stops mid-thought. If we were reading in Isaiah 61, we know that the year of the Lord's favor is matched with the day of the Lord's vengeance. He doesn't mention anything about bringing the Lord's vengeance because what he has come to do in his initial ministry is to declare the year of jubilee. And the Jewish mindset, every seventh seven, after 49 years, the 50th year was to be the year of Jubilee, where those that had been dispossessed, who had lost their land or who were in debt, all debts were forgiven, land was given back, everybody was restored because he was bringing liberty and wholeness to all those that were struggling. And what he's doing is he's standing up and saying, I have come to accomplish this. And he says so just as he finishes and he rolls up the scroll. He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He's ushering in jubilee for those that are revival ready. What we've been talking about in the book of Isaiah, the pulverized, the melted. He says, I've come with a special eye for them. And I will restore those that are needy and they know it. You see, he comes with a spirit-filled revolution to care for these that are struggling. It's interesting to me, even as I still think about this against the backdrop of, of the Cuban revolution, I've, I've been reading these stories and I, I read about Che Guevara and his motorcycle diaries. Maybe you saw the film or familiar with the book, but it's the story of when he was a young man. He was a young physician and his area of specialty was working with lepers. He wanted to see lepers healed. And he and a friend got on a motorbike and rode all the way across South America with their hearts full of idealism. And as they traveled, you can almost read in the, in the diaries the transformation that's happening as he sees the human suffering from one place to the next. In each country he goes to, he feels like it's similar to the previous one. And by the end, you can feel his anger. A man that had idealism and his 
interesting and compelling. I think I would have enjoyed Jay as a young man. I think he was funny and fun. And at the same time, you can feel it building that a man that wanted to see the sick made well and the poor set free, it generated anger. And his follow-up book was a book called Guerrilla Warfare. It was a book about how to cause the greatest harm for those that have caused the oppression. The interesting thing is that revolutionaries, past and present, are oftentimes motivated by the very same thing that Jesus comes motivated by. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. There is suffering in every corner. There is brokenness that is shot through all of our lives. And those that rise up and say, something has to change. This is the birthplace of revolution. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus is going to come with such a different approach. He's going to come embodying the vision of what he believes can be. He's going to come fulfilling all that he's calling people to. It's not a call to arms. It's a call to something very different. This spirit-filled revolution comes for those in the weakest places. And interestingly, as he declares it, on the outset, it is enthusiastically accepted. The teachings of Jesus are enthusiastically accepted. I want to show it to you in this text. First, in verse 15, it says this, He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The idea is that where Jesus shows up and he teaches, people go, your words are different. Jesus' words have stood the test of time. Throughout history, people have heard the teachings of Jesus and go, that's compelling. It's undeniable in its power. It's interesting, even historically and culturally, the way that people have affirmed the teachings of Jesus. There's a few quotes that I want to throw up on the screen for you. Um, a few theologians for us to help us think about the teachings of Jesus. This is what Michael Jackson said about the teachings of Jesus. He said, the story of Jesus is very fascinating. It still has such tremendous power. Even after 2,000 years, everything he did was inspiring. Brad Pitt said, I was raised a Christian. I've done a lot of my own thinking. I really like the basics of Christianity. <clears throat> Excuse me. I love the idea of the teachings of Jesus Christ, the beautiful simplicity of it. Interestingly, the thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau said this, if you just get rid of the miracles, the whole world would fall at the feet of Jesus. The thread that runs through these three quotes, and it's interesting as I was doing a little bit of research, just reading, what do prolific people throughout history have to say about the teachings of Jesus? I could have put hundreds of quotes up here from really interesting people from all different sectors throughout all different, different places, but there's this interesting thread that runs through them. And you see it here. There's something about his teaching that's undeniable. He came in the power of the Spirit, and when he spoke, his words carried weight in such a way that people from all different backgrounds, whether or not they were willing to bend a knee to Jesus or not, were able to say there's something special about this. And Rousseau captures this idea that if we could just, if we could just do away with the miraculous, and since what he's saying is everything that offends our intellectual sensibilities that we obviously know couldn't be, then the whole world would bend at the feet of Jesus. So there's this interesting note that there's this enthusiastic acceptance of the teachings of Jesus. It reminds me of a friend of mine that used to do ministry in Canada, and he was talking about doing homeless ministry. He was working with the unhoused in, in a Canadian city, and he said he started sharing about Jesus with a man that had had some questions, and they were talking, and the man said, I need to show you something. 
And he took him back to a lean-to where he had been living. And he had a little pallet on the ground. And he had this kind of makeshift covering. And then he had a little spot dug out where he would build fires to try to stay warm through the bitter cold nights. And he sat down on his pallet and he reached under it and he pulled out a stack of these little flyers. And he said, these have all been given to me. And they were little tracks with teachings of Jesus in them, the truth about Jesus. And he said, every night, I've burned everything I have to stay warm, but there was something about these that just felt unburnable. Can you tell me about him? You see, from the streets of bitter cold cities to the rich and the powerful to the brilliant, there's a certain sense in which the teachings of Jesus have been enthusiastically accepted throughout time because, or at least where he meets people's expectations, where he speaks in ways that people go, oh yeah, that, that resonates deeply with me. And you see it even in his hometown when he stands and speaks in verse 20, right on the heels of reading these verses from Isaiah, you can feel the people with bated breath going, this is different. He says this in verse 20. It says, he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That word, their eyes were fixed on him. That's a unique Lucan phrase. He uses that to to talk about people that are so focused that it's almost like they're holding their breath. They're waiting, going, what's he about to do? And after he reads an unexpected passage and he stops in the middle of it, he rolls up the scroll and he sets it aside. He goes, what we just read, right now, as you're listening, it was just fulfilled. I'm here. And as people are listening, they're going, whoa, this is different. We've never heard a rabbi teach like this. He doesn't quote other people. He, doesn't, he speaks with authority and says, it's all about me. And these people are stunned. And they say, this is marvelous. There is a, an, an enthusiastic acceptance on the front end where people's expectations are stirred and they feel like they're fulfilled. But... Jesus didn't just come to fulfill our expectations. He challenges them. He overturns them. And as he does, what you will see is that what what motivates this enthusiastic acceptance very quickly turns to an angry rejection. I want to show it to you in the text. It says this in verse 22 and following, picking up right where we left off. It says, they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, in this text, that kind of reads like an innocuous question, but if you're reading this in conjunction with the other Gospels, in Mark 3, the same telling of this story tells us that the reason they asked this question is they took offense at him. So we can read this question like they're offended. They're going, wait a second. Those were marvelous words, and we're all like caught up in it, but hold on, we know you. We know your dad, he's a carpenter. We know your mom, we know that... She got pregnant out of wedlock and that they had a patched up marriage. We know that they live right around the corner. We know you, Jesus. At least they think they do. And they take offense that he's standing and speaking such bold words. In verse 23, it says this. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, so do here in your hometown as well. 
You see, and he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You see, it's true that familiarity breeds contempt. Everybody in the synagogue knows Jesus, and they have since the time they were little. They've grown up with him, and they're taking great offense at the fact that he is making some claims that step on their toes. He's starting to claim things about his own authority that they go, hold on, hold on, hold on. If we could, the the teachings are great, but this other stuff is kind of offensive. And, and they start to take offense at this, this man that grew up around the corner from them. It's kind of like, maybe you've seen the movie Braveheart. Uh, it's the story of the great liberator in Scotland, William Wallace. And he's kind of become mythical in nature as the word has spread about him. And there's going to be this great battle where everyone has gathered. They're ready to fight for their freedom. And they're all lined up and painted up. Maybe you remember this. They're all standing there. But so many of them have never actually met or seen William Wallace. And when he rides onto the field, he rides past them. They all start muttering and whispering. And they go, that can't be him. He's not tall enough. (laughs) And William Wallace gets in front and says, yeah, you were expecting someone that's seven feet tall and has fireballs coming out of their eyes, right? Like there's this idea of, he, he, he says, you were expecting this grand thing. And as Jesus steps up and says, I have come to fulfill all the hopes of Israel, they're going, well, you're not the way we wanted you to be. You're not as impressive as we wanted you to be. You're not rich and powerful and there's no beauty in you. There's nothing that would draw us to you. You see, one of the ways, if we're not careful, that we will reject the fullness of what Jesus wants to do in our lives is that we, are, we become offended by the ways that he's not, he didn't live up to our secret expectations. The ways that we feel like, well, I really thought when you showed up, you were going to magically change this piece of my story, or you were going to sprinkle stardust on this, and everything was going to be polished and perfect. And Jesus comes in a low and a humble way to meet his people. He comes in a way where those that have known his name for a long time are oftentimes the most at risk of treating him with this sort of contempt. I think those that grew up in Nazareth, those that grow up in a, in a home where you hear Jesus talked about, they're the ones that are most at potential to becoming nose blind. They can't, they can't smell the sweet aromas of Jesus because he's always been around. And for these people, they treat him with contempt because he doesn't meet all of their high expectations. But then, interestingly, he presses further, and it's not just for this reason— and I think maybe the reason that we're, we'd be most tempted to, to reject him is what comes next, and it's this. He refuses to tell you what you want to hear. In verses 25 through 30, he pushes further, and he says this, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great, camp, a great famine came over all the land. Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. See, Jesus does not affirm their first century Jewish nationalism. 
This idea of we are the only ones that matter and everyone else is outside of God's compassion and care. In this moment where he's experiencing their pushback, he says, hey, this is not a surprise because this has always been the case. The people of God make it an us versus them thing. And they, they look down on those people. He says, listen, God's heart is just as much for them. Let me tell you, in Elijah's time and in Elisha's time, he tended to, to Syrians rather than Israelites. And in so saying, he's flipping the tables on these people's expectations. He's saying things that they didn't expect to hear and that makes them furious. Jesus does this consistently in his ministry. He will come to those that are full of themselves and he will decry judgmentalism. He will come to those that are embedded in sexual sin and he has a very high sexual ethic that makes them very uncomfortable. There's a certain sense in which if you stick with Jesus long enough, at some point he's going to stomp on your toes. He cuts across every category. He's not neatly contained in the left or the right. We want to make him like a political figure and put him some neatly category. And then he just cuts right through the categories. And he goes, I affirm things and I deny things that people try to put on me that are not me. And if you stick with me, I am robust and more than you've ever imagined. I will speak with authority over every area in a way that will transform your life. But listen, I'm going to flip way more than tables. And for these people, as he spoke in this way, it so enraged them. And remind, let me remind you, these were all the people that knew him. They, he knew them. These are neighbors and friends. And what did they do? They wanted to kill him. They ran him out of town to the cliff. They were going to throw him down. And we don't know, you know, there's a lot written about verse 30, trying to figure out what happened there. Jesus just like walked through them. We don't know if he was just like a little shiftier than everybody else. Was that like, I'm quick. I don't think so though. I think it was, he was operating in the fullness of the spirit. And in a moment, I just think there was something indestructible about him at this time because the time had not come. I think there was a certain sense in which with authority he walks through the crowd, looking at their eyes as they look at his. And I think in that moment he was taking inventory with this reality. He has come to set the people free and he knows what it's going to cost him. This is his first recorded sermon. And as he stands and he preaches to the people that are closest to him, they hate him for it. There is an angry rejection that's going to find its culmination in a few short years in Calvary as he bleeds and dies. And those that he's come to set free are the very ones that are turning on him because he hasn't met their expectations in the, all the ways that they wanted. And if we're not careful, we are liable to do the same. We are liable to reject the king because he doesn't meet our expectations. But the beauty in this moment is he's bleeding and dying, is he's paying the price for that rejection, for that lack of belief. And in his resurrection form, he is extending forgiveness and freedom and fullness to his people. And the, real, the realization is this, that he is starting a revolution. And it's a revolution that's very different than any that we've known throughout history. It's a revolution of love. He's not calling anyone to bear up arms. He's laying down his life and he's saying, I will love you right there in the midst of your sin. And as you are ransomed and renewed, you can do the same beyond yourself. You can be a part of this liberating movement of God in the world. Listen, we've been praying and we're in a season of fasting, praying, asking for revival. God, pour out your presence on us. When he does, what it brings is revolution. When his presence settles down on a people, it changes them. 
it upends the ways that we have dealt with him. And, and we come to this conclusion where we have to wrestle with him. Are we going to recognize him for what he is, Lord and King over all, robust and willing to speak into every area of our lives, not afraid to step on our toes, not, a, not afraid to call us to a whole new life? Quite frankly, many of us in these moments were tempted to lay him across the what they used to call the procrustean bed. It's the idea of he's stretched out and wherever he doesn't match expectations, we lop off all the things that don't. Well, I don't like that part of him and I don't like that part of him, but I'll take this part of him. Jesus, the revolutionary, is going to enter into the system in the coming weeks for us. So we look at him in the book of Luke. He's going to continue to do things. And by the time we're done, I trust that he will have offended us all. And the question is, do we welcome him as Lord? saying what we want is all of your presence. And that means you're going to come and you're going to work revolution in us and you're going to set us free to be a part of that revolution. Listen, the risk we run is to say, we're just going to try to take bits and pieces and we're going to miss the felt presence, the reality of what God wants to usher into our lives. And so the invitation in the coming weeks is will you welcome the revolutionary? the crucified and resurrected one who is igniting a very different revolution, one that is marked by love and that he's inviting you to be a part of. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, there is no one like you. No one. No one who spoke like you speak, no one who has loved like you loved, no one who has conquered death and spoken with authority from the other side of the grave, you are spectacular. And I pray that we would be the sorts of people that welcome you with all of your power, with all of your character, with all of your truth, and that we would gladly submit to you as Lord and King, that we might be the sorts of people that get caught up in your revolution of love. We want to be those people. And so I pray that we would welcome you in all of your might in the coming weeks, that you would be touching and transforming us, that you would be flipping things over in our life such that we would be caught up in all that you are doing in and through us. Jesus, you're our hope, you're our hero. We bless you and we worship you together. It's in your name that we pray, amen.